Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to Indian Religions. This is your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find out more about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Clara Joseph, who is Associate Professor of English and Adjunct Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Calgary in Canada. We're speaking about a fascinating new book called Christianity in India, The Anti-Colonial Turn. Clara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me to this program. Thank you. Indeed. And uh, as they say, this is this is not our first rodeo. I actually did my, my PhD work at Calgary, so I'm familiar with the program there. You have a much lovelier setting in the backdrop with the mountains there. <laughs> we <Ha-ha>. do. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Quite enjoyed my time there for a number of reasons. Um, this book is part of the Rutledge uh, Studies in Asian Religions and Philosophy series. It's a 2019 Rutledge publication. And as I was saying to Clara just before we started, books like this are precisely why this podcast, once called Hindu Studies, is now called Indian Religions, so we can broaden out and get some more texture in, in, in these conversations about religion uh, related to the, the South Asia or the Indic subcontinent. Um, you know, where do we start? Let's start here. Christianity in India. Okay, what's your book about? Like, what is this Christianity in India? Who are these people? Okay, um, so um, I throw a few questions there, and so I will, um, if I may, I'll begin with uh, saying um, how I began with the project. Is that good? And then I'll move on to absolutely sure. So the project began about 20 years ago when I was invited to write a chapter in an edition on the religions of the Indian diaspora. Um, I've been trained in the field of post-colonial studies, uh, which, as you know, is concerned with the history of colonization, specifically British colonization and its impact on the nation. Now, my research on the history of Christianity in India highlighted two aspects that tend to be ignored. One is that as far as the history of India is concerned, European colonization began with the arrival of the Portuguese. As a discipline or as a field, post-colonial studies, however, tends to ignore this early history of colonialism. Secondly, what I notice is that whether it is within the study of religions of India, religions of the world, or the history of Christianity, Christianity is seen as an introduction to India by European colonizers, and again, specifically the British. The history of Christianity in India, however, predates European colonization. And so uh, these two aspects actually prompted me to write the book, okay? Now, um, the... 
a book, Christianity in India, the anti-colonial turn. It's about how the arrival of the Portuguese in Southern India turned out to be a colonizing experience for the native Christians of India. The book examines how the Portuguese sought out the Thomas Christians in their attempt to end the trade monopoly of the so-called Turks. The Thomas Christians were growers and traders of spices and chief of which was uh, black pepper. In the late 15th century and in the 16th century, black pepper was still considered black gold. Um, the Portuguese wanted to trade with the Thomas Christians directly and not through the Turks. The Turks, mind you, encompassed all those traders from Africa and the Middle East, most of whom were Muslims, but there were others as well, such as Jews, Eastern Christians, Zoroastrians, etc. So basically, the Portuguese wanted to get rid of all these middlemen. The book, therefore, represents this historical situation. It also examines the dynamics and the relationship between the Thomas Christians and the Portuguese. It looks at how the two parties cooperated and how they fought against each other. At the more theoretical level, however, the book is a response, I would say, to those who consider that colonization and Christianity are the same. This view that colonization and Christianity are the same within at least post-colonial studies comes from the priority that is given to British colonization and narratives of conversion as the ultimate purpose of colonization. Now, these studies on British colonization are undoubtedly well-grounded and important. However, they do not answer why it was important for European colonizers to invade Thomas Christian churches and communities. So my book takes up that problem. So Thomas Christians, who are the Thomas Christians for a general audience? Um, they're a community in India. They claim that their ancestors were converted by an apostle of Jesus, St. Thomas. That's why they are known as Thomas Christians. They are a minority in India. Uh, the population is about 9 million. In the early colonial period, they were traders of sp spices and their men used to serve in the armies of the native kings. The aim of the Portuguese was to befriend the Thomas Christians so as to be able to have direct trade with them instead of going through the um, Levant. Now, what historical evidence do we have? Do we have a sense of how far back this community goes? Um, so the, the community um, believes and practices the tradition that their ancestors were converted in the first century. Um, they, so that's the first century. Now, they practice as a minority group. And that considering that they are a well-off community and have been so over the centuries, even before the colonial period, um, it would be disadvantages for them to make such a claim if it did not have a basis. Their songs and dances and their architecture provide evidence of the faith. No other Christian community outside India claims the St. Thomas Christian heritage the way this community does. The apocryphal Acts of Thomas is often said to be the earliest written evidence on the arrival of Thomas in India. This document is from the latter part of the third century. At the end of the second century, however, we have Pentanus recording that he had he came across Christians in India, and that you know Pentanus actually went on and corrected them. Um, 
he says, when they sat down, uh, you know, they sat down to listen to the gospel. And according to Pantanus, they ought to show respect to the gospel by standing up. Um, so um, that's the narrative around uh, Pantanus meeting the Christians of India. Um, so those are the uh, written sources. Fascinating. To, um, please go ahead. Yeah. So two questions that is, did St. Thomas come to India? Did St. Peter go to Rome? Um, the questions have to be rethought within historiography that respects lived traditions of peoples, oral and cultural sources, and discourse analysis and ideology critique. What data are you looking at? Um, I'm looking at primary sources, including rarely addressed or controversial parts of otherwise popular travel narratives of the 15th and 16th century. I'm also looking at archival material involving correspondences during this colonial era between the um, Thomas Christians and the Portuguese secular and ecclesiastical authorities. And then all along, the chapters engage with or they respond to current scholarship on the history of the church in India and scholarship on the study of colonialism. And in doing so, uh, the book highlights some of the challenges within post-colonial paradigms. Tell us a bit about the structure of the book. Um, the book has an introductory chapter and a concluding chapter. And then in between, there are three chapters. All the chapters are divided into um, titled sections. So the introduction lays out the so-called big problem. Um, and that's that the scholars, whether they are Orientalist or post-colonialist, whether they think colonization was a good thing or a bad thing, they share the equation that colonialism is Christian. The chapter then provides an introduction to the Thomas Christians and how their tradition and sources respond to this big problem. That's what the introductory chapter does. The second chapter looks at the figure of Prestojan of India. Now, this figure was crucial to some of the decisions that the West made regarding colonization and even the Crusades. The information that the West had about this figure was that he came from, um, Prester John came from India, uh, from the land of Pepper, that he was linked to the tradition of St. Thomas, that he was not Roman or Latin in his church customs, and that he had a large army, which they hoped they could use during the Crusades against the Muslims. The chapter considers the connections with the traditional leader of the Thomas Christians, the Archdeacon. My point is that Prester John, as the prince priest, can convincingly invoke the figure of this archdeacon. So that's chapter two. Chapter three considers some controversies concerning the Thomas Christians as presented in the travel diary of Vasco da Gama. The controversies arose, of course, as a result of how scholars interpreted the material. One issue is whether Gama saw Christians at all. And the second is whether those who claimed to be Thomas Christians, since they said they did not eat beef, were Christians to begin with. And the chapter close reads primary and secondary sources to show how later even the Portuguese refrained from eating beef so as not to insult the religious sentiments of the Hindu population. 
The chapter also presents a lesser known segment in the well-known travelogue of Cabral, the Portuguese navigator and military commander who reached Brazil, you know, and then made the journey to South India. When he left for Lisbon, two native priests joined him. That was in 1500. One of the brothers is known to us, uh, the two were brothers. And so one of the brothers is known as Joseph the Indian, not a relative. The narratives of Joseph the Indian, consisting of interviews um, recorded by fellow travelers. um, And my chapter considers how the West, including the King of Portugal with whom Joseph has more than one audience, reads this individual for purposes of profit Joseph's audience with the Pope highlights the differences in uh, church customs and traditions that draw some parallels with the narratives of Prester John. These differences also lead to the charge of error and heresy in future decades for the Thomas Christian community. The The sources that I use in this chapter aim to push global early modern studies to expand its global width to include the narratives of Christians of the East. Then there is chapter four. It examines the Jornada, the travel diary of um, Archbishop Alexidemenesis, the Archbishop of Goa. The book was published in 1606 in Coimbra. The chapter looks at how Menezes made a mountain of the conventional differences in the church practices of the Thomas Christians, how he used ecclesiastical reasons to prevent bishops arriving from the Middle East, the Levant, and how he brought the ancient church of the Thomas Christians under the Archdiocese of Goa with all its Roman Latin practices, which the Thomas Christians resented to the core. A narrative that gets lost in scholarship that considers these occurrences is the Portuguese priority of colonial profit. So my chapter draws the links between trade and the Portuguese church goals, as these concern the struggles between the Thomas Christians and the Portuguese in the late 16th century. An intriguing discovery, if I may say so, in this chapter concerns the etymology of um, amok, as in to run amok, right, amok. Um, I trace the term to the amokos, or death squad of the Thomas Christians that the Portuguese feared and yet so desperately wanted. by the way, the Amokos and the slightly less deadly army of the various kings of the early modern period consisted of members who were Hindus, Muslims, and Christians, and their allegiance was primarily to their king. Now, that takes us to the conclusion, which uh, mainly revisits the uh, major issues, the major texts, and observes that colonial studies on India uh, ignore the fact that colonial resistance began not in the 19th century, but right when European colonialism of India took place, that is, in the late 15th century. My job is to uh, make sure that uh, 80 to 90 percent of the speaking is yours. Okay. <laughs> and hopefully the questions that I ask, however naive, um, may prompt such speech. Um, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> there's so many directions. Uh, what do you think the implications are? This is an historical work. It has obviously deep implications for um, the study of colonialism, the study of South Asia. What are some of the implications of this work uh, beyond the subfield, do you think? Um, 
Okay. One, I would say, is that we have to move away from the Western discourse that colonialism was a civilizing mission. Because at the heart of this discourse is the belief that colonialism is Christianity. Okay. Um, secondly, I would say that um, early modern studies uh, in its attempt to become global, that's the global early modern period studies, has to break away from the West is Christian and the East is not binary. Um, thirdly, I think the book challenges the notion that in the case of India, Christianity was a European colonial introduction and that therefore to be an Indian Christian is to be unpatriotic. The project um, in this in that sense challenges the narrative of jingoistic nationalism as it does that of the colonial Christianizing mission. Then I think the book argues that what authorities perceived as religious heresy were actually acts of resistance in the face of social injustice. Um, in short, that the colonial powers misinterpreted resistance as heresy, whether I would, I, I've argued that it was deliberate to, to make that misconstrual. Um, one of my intents with this book is to move the focus of India studies to the study of the peninsula. Um, and I think it's a much needed shift to counter the trend in Indian historiography to label anything that occurs in North India as Indian, while to a great extent ignoring similar other events of major importance occurring in South India. Uh, uh, the, the formation, the growth of Eastern Christianity in the first millennium is something that happens uh, uh, in South India. It is unique to South India. And so the book looks at the impact of South India's Eastern Christianity on colonialism. I, I think these are, um, you know, some of the major um, points that can be applied to other areas as well in a wider general sense. Certainly, those are um, uh, far-reaching implications. It's, it's a fascinating study. Uh, just for the for the sake of discussion, if one were to say to you, "Look, um, you know, uh, I've read your book, Dr. Joseph. I really like it. It's great. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, I'm, I'm chewing on this idea of decoupling colonialism and Christianity, and I'm thinking to myself, um, isn't this community an exception to the East and West binary that most people?" Uh, think of, um, what, what might you say to that? Mm -hmm. um, that they are an exception, yeah. Um, right, this is a, this, uh, is this the only example of Christianity, quote unquote, in, quote unquote, the East? Uh, yeah. uh, right, mm -hmm. in, in light of the, the decoupling that you're advocating in your scholarship. Right, yeah. Um, so this is actually, uh, this book is an invitation to look at Eastern Christianity per se, because Eastern Christianity um, has a history that is quite distinct from that of Western Christianity. And it has its own conflicts and often, especially with the rise of Islam in the seventh century, very quickly, Eastern Christianity became um, a subordinate faith, a, main, um, a minor faith that experienced what it meant to be colonized. So this is an experience that went all the way 
you know, from the, the seventh century onwards, um, which is an experience that is limited to the uh, what we call the Middle East, uh, what we call Africa, <laughs> right? Uh, what we call China, right? Um, and uh, so these all all of these regions, um, um, you know, parts of Russia, um, and then of course. Uh, and then if you go further uh, west, uh, the, the Orthodox churches, the Greek Orthodox churches, and so on. So this is a, this is a history that is totally ignored in studies of Western Christianity, studies of Christianity, which uh, it becomes equal to Western Christianity, always equated to Western Christianity. And so within that larger context of historical occurrences, the experience of the Thomas Christians is not an exception, but in the case of India, it is, uh, and in the uh, case of um, scholarship concerning India, uh, the studies in on Thomas Christianity might come across as an exception. This example, this case study, uh, the, this, uh, this, this research, do you think there are analogs, uh, modern day present? Uh, does it illumine other uh, social religious trends in South Asia? Um, can you expand a bit more on that? I, so I so you, you, you're describing a historical process that's far reaching because it's very much applicable. Um, I'd, I personally, I say to, to many aspects of Indian religion, do you think there are other movements or situations uh, presently uh, that um, this sheds light on your argument in this book? Um, I would say that even in the, in the narratives of um, texts, medieval texts, Hindu medieval texts that are not part of the canon, um, I think it is the same kind of reading that can be applied, the same kind of historical analysis that can be applied. Um, so texts that have been marginalized uh, can certainly uh, gain from the methodological um, paradigms and equations in this particular book, um, including, I would say, um, tribal histories, um, histories of, um, I don't know, Dr. Balkarin, I would say, even the Devi Mahatmya, right? <laughs> Without question, the Puranas come to mind, but let's not make this about me, shall we? But yes, right, and, yeah. and Raj is fine, of course. Right. Yes. Um, so so that that is the, uh, in other words, you know, texts that have not um, received the necessary um, attention of in scholar within canonical scholarship, I think can be presented within similar paradigms. That's my point. It's fascinating. You touched on this when we talked about the implications for various subfields, but let's drive this home. Who might be interested in this book, do you think? Um, the, the particular audience um, for students of literary and uh, cultural studies, a critical post-colonial reading of selected texts 
offers rare instances of interactions between society, imagination, and representation. The power politics played out in the context of early colonialism and native Christianity will be of interest to this community. Students of colonial studies, whether interested in mainstream canonical texts or indigenous, subaltern, post-colonial marginal texts, they will be interested, interested in these re-readings of metropolitan and provincial texts of Portuguese um, colonization of Indian regions. The, I would say the anticipated readers um, are uh, students of religious studies interested in the dynamics of a religion shared by the colonizer and the colonized. Uh, students of medieval and early modern studies who dare to open up the canon and the period to history and geography. Um, readers of South Asian texts and its diaspora around the world, particularly students of India studies who are interested in the continued impact of colonial history on their lives and cultures. The general reader interested in relationships of religion and society in the 16th century colonial period. Um, I think this title will speak to scholars in the areas of studies in Christianity um, by providing reasons to reconsider the current boundaries of the discipline in the face of living traditions of Christianity um, with origin in pre-colonial India, um, in the academic field studies in so-called world Christianity revolve mainly around colonial missions and Western missionary movements in the non-West. Um, you know, given that a professor of world Christianity is typically someone specialized in Western Christianity, the history, culture, and texts of the community, such as the Thomas Christians, um, you know, tend to be absent from schools, colleges, universities. So it is my hope that this project can kind of remedy some of the biases around, you know, arise, arising from such a system. Um, and then... Um, so it it would be uh, the readers would be those interested in breaking that bi that binary I would say and the biases, and then the diasporas in the West are seeing increasing numbers of Christians from the Middle East landing on Western shores, and so there again there is an audience um, among uh, the resident population and those those arriving. Um, so. I think um, that's roughly the kind of audience I'm looking at. Yeah, certainly. Oh, it's certainly, certainly a far-reaching audience. One of the one of the real um, <laughs> intrigue, shall we say, of this podcast. Uh, so, how to say? So, uh, there are times when I I do public talks uh, or continuing study situations. Uh, sometimes you teach credit. Sometimes you're speaking to specialists at a conference, and they're all very different registers. And with the podcast, it's fascinating to me that. It's pitched to a general audience. The lifelong learners are aboard. And um, uh, much to my surprise, I learned a couple of years ago, a number of our colleagues and uh, grad students in the field are also listening in, probably to vet the book so that they can take a deep dive and, and do more critical analysis in the research or for their teaching or whatnot. But it's mm -hmm. interesting that we, we keep it broad so we don't lose anyone. Nevertheless, it's it's 
my hope at least that there's sufficient substance there for those uh, in the field. Um, as for the uh, fascinating point of, yeah, well, uh, I would imagine that a number of professors of Christianity or scholars of Christianity would not be uh, nearly as familiar with this uh, case study as you are. So that might make an interesting read for such scholars. There is uh, a number of uh, uh, channels, uh, podcast channels on the New Books Network dedicated to various fields. There is a Christian Studies um, podcast, and we'll certainly cross-post this uh, podcast to that channel as well. Every once in a while, uh, folks will ask me if I've left the podcast because they'll, they'll hear a podcast hosted on the, on Indian religions um, by someone else. And I have to explain, no, no, no. It's actually hosted at a different channel, but cross-posted to Indian religions. So I'm still here, no, not to worry. Um, so we'll cross-post this to as many of the relevant subfields um, as we can for the sake of uh, what we do, which is educating the public and disseminating uh, uh, the findings. Uh, we, 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 we toil for these findings and uh, ideally um, more than 12 people should be aware of what we found. <laughs> maybe 20, maybe 50 if we're lucky. <laughs> um, quite challenging, yeah. That's well, quite a mission if I may use that colonial term. Yeah. Well, well uh, I think I mentioned in the email we have a number of uh, uh, tens of thousands of downloads a month. So for whatever reason, people are interested in these nerdy topics. It's great. Um, is this work that you will be continuing or that you have continued since publication? Um, I, I am reflecting on um, certain aspects um, that needed more fleshing out and um, certain aspects that are taking new turns. Um, and I'm... Um, especially with reference to texts that I have not covered, uh, texts that, uh, that move into the latter part of the 16th century and go into the 17th century. Um, so, uh, you know, as to what happens to this particular community during the latter part of the Portuguese colonization, what happens to them when the Dutch walk in um, in the 17th century, um, and then um, those, especially that particular period, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm looking at right now. Um, there's a lot more, there's a lot more that I have to investigate before I can actually structure something into the shape of even an outline of a book, but that's where I am. Sure. The best yeah. books, as I like to say, are beginnings, right? They sort of yes. un unearth, they unearth uh, you finish a book and you're like, oh, I've just unearthed this entire trajectory of thought. What do I do now? Um, <laughs> um, was there anything else about the book that you hope we touch on today? Um, this is, uh, um, I, I just um, comment a little bit on that title. Um, Christianity in India, the anti-colonial turn. And so there are some um, apparent um, ironies or paradoxes sitting there um, that I'm aware of and uh, that I will continue to work on as I proceed. Um, one is... Um, as you know, as I indicated, the term Christianity, the phrase Christianity in India, at once um, 
in the current uh, dominant canonical um, field of scholarship um, would indicate the, um, the presence of Christian converts through colonization and so on. And then, and so there's a, there's a problem sitting there, the, you know, Christianity in India. The other is that Christianity in India actually refers in this book to the Thomas Christians and that too located in the South. Therefore, how is it India? And uh, as I uh, mentioned earlier, it is a deliberate um, um, placement uh, of the word India there to, to highlight that what happens in the South is also India. Um, and I think this is, a, it's a very simple statement, but it's so important to consider the North and the South, the South and the North in these um, attempts to understand the country, the nation. Um, and then the anti-colonial, how can Christianity be anti-colonial? Um, and my only way to examine this was through the specific. So in a way, um, uh, uh, this analysis of micro history, right? The, uh, getting to the specific and examining that and how that produced certain results and what we do with those results. So, so, so that's the inquiry that's continuing for me. Fascinating. Part of the reason, as I mentioned at the outset, will come full circle, that I decided, I believe it was earlier this year, to rebrand Hindu studies to Indian religions, was to include Islam in India, um, Christianity in India, Jainism, Sikhism, for which there are not currently other channels. Um, and, and for me, India is not uh, necessarily the, the modern nation state. Uh, it's, 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 it's cultural, it's civilizational, it's um, the way we use Egypt for more than the nation state of Egypt or, or, or Israel uh, or Persia versus Iran. Um, so it makes sense to me that India would be used in this broader sense to refer to, to, to the, the subcontinent at large. Um, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for this opportunity. Have a great day. Thank you. Now, for those of you listening, if I'm not mistaken, Clara, uh, since publishing this book, you are now full professor, are you not? Yes, thank you. Excellent. So for those of you listening, we've been speaking with um, Dr. Clara Joseph, who's a professor of English uh, and uh, um, of religious studies at the University of Calgary in uh, the land of Canada, <laughs> if any of you have heard of it. Uh, we've been speaking with her about her, her new uh, Rutledge publication, Christianity in India, the Anti-Colonial Turn. Uh, until next time, uh, keep listening, keep reading, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating Christianity in India. Take care.